Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we started in the first 10 verses and we're going back into that again this morning, kind of uh, really digging out the gold that is buried within. And so uh, if you haven't been with us, let me kind of catch you up to speed. The book of Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, a church that he had planted and started sometime in the past that had really flourished under his leadership. In the book of Acts, Acts chapters uh, 17 through 20, we read about what happened there and how Paul started this church and revival kind of broke out. People started coming to faith. First, it was of the Jews because he was teaching in the synagogues, but then the gospel spread even amongst the Gentile population. And so, uh, and we know that Ephesus was a tough spot. It's where the temple of Artemis was. There was pagan worship. There was a cult practice. And so you see this church begin to emerge. It's made up of Jew and Gentile with really conflicting cultural backgrounds and, 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 and ideas about what human beings are and why human beings exist. And so Paul writes this letter back to that church now to, to it, help them understand this is what God has done for you in Jesus. As we saw just a couple of weeks ago uh, at the end of chapter one, when Paul says, I'm, I'm writing you because I heard about your faith in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, this is the, the position that you have in Jesus. This is what God has done in Christ for you, such that this is who you are now. Last week, we saw that in chapter 2, verses, uh, verses 1 through 10, Paul is elaborating on, speaking about what happened when these people trusted Jesus by faith. And he's doing that really for two reasons. We've talked about this each week in the series. One, to unify these people. How do people from such radically divergent cultures, backgrounds, religious convictions, ideas about what human beings are. How do people from those sorts of backgrounds who now find themselves together in a church ever have any chance of getting along, have any chance of, uh, of knowing one another, of loving one another, caring for one another? And so Paul starts with, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is your new identity. And then that identity is going to lead to a, a flourishing unity. And then that unity, this is the second reason that Paul is writing, that unity leads to a particular way of life, that the church, the people of God, begin to live in a particular direction, shaped in a particular way, the way they love their neighbor, the way they, they do things like their job and, and marriage and family, all of that is shaped by the faith that they possess and the person that they've become in Christ Jesus. So that's where we pick up today. Last week, I said that there's really three things in this passage. Paul's telling us about the human condition. This is who we were before Jesus, before we profess faith. All human beings shared this thing in common, Paul says. He gives us the divine solution, but God, as he says in verse 4, has made us alive together. We talked about this last week. God is the main subject. Made alive is the main verb, and that's what Paul is emphasizing. So we're going to talk about that today, the divine solution. Ultimately, in hopes that verse 10 would become true for all of us, we would be a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So today we're going to kind of go back and talk just a little bit again about the human condition, a lot about the divine solution, and then hopefully lead into next week talking about the new creation, that is the new people of God, the church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, read with me if you will. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you guys will indulge me for just a quick second, I want to read you a story from a relatively new book by Harrison Scott Key called How to Stay Married. Some of y'all may have read it. Really good read. But there's a little uh, anecdote, a little story that he tells about his childhood, and specifically a story of an encounter that happened in Sunday school one time that I think is a good lead into what we're going to talk about today, especially as we revisit this problem of the human condition and the glory of the divine solution that solves that for us. Uh, So he tells a story about being in Sunday school one day when this event happened. He says, I arrived at Sunday school first, and I sat alone. Other young people trickled into the classroom. Right before class, through the door came our teacher, and with her, she brought something more real and fearsome than a dragon, a poor little blind boy with no cane. Good morning, children, the teacher said. This is Willie. Hi, Willie squeaked. I, can't, I cannot tell you the morning's lesson, for I was consumed by a deeply Christ-like compassion for this poor child of God. What blessing had I to live in such luxury with two working eyes? It's like he stepped right out of the Bible, this child. Time flew as as always happens when I'm feeling exceptionally righteous, and before long, class was over. Can someone help get Willie to the sanctuary, the teacher asked the class. Yes, ma'am, I said, volunteering. Jesus, if he was real, would want it. Thank you, Willie said in my general direction. I could feel the seed of charity growing inside my disbelieving little heart. Willie clutched my arm as we navigated our way toward the sanctuary through forests of thick forearms and the squeak of Sunday shoes on polished linoleum. How did Willie spend his days, I wondered. I spent mine with axes and footballs and knives and rifles. You can't give a rifle to a blind boy. What do you like to do, I asked as we walked down the hallway. I like riding horses. I pictured Willie riding a horse across a green pasture, perhaps into a ravine. That seemed very unsafe to me. I liked helping people, especially when others noticed my helping. Laying up treasures in heaven is what my grandmother would call it, when good people do good things because God is watching and remembering. Such an act of service elevates you to a higher spiritual plane, which can make it difficult to lead the visually impaired who in fact dwell on the earthly plane, where many three-dimensional objects exist, whether you see them or not. And that's when I heard the crash. Poor Willie, clutching his face, crumpled now in a heap at my feet, had, in the midst of my holy reverie, slammed into a floor-mounted drinking fountain. Oh, gosh, I said, looking down at Willie, doubled over in in blood coming from his face. It's okay, poor Willie said. Through a blood-soaked grimace, more responsible churchgoers rushed in to help the boy, lifting him from the floor and bringing tissues for his nose. I stood there stunned, humiliated, hot coals heaped upon my head. I tell you, no matter how many treasures you've got locked away in the First National Bank of Canaan's land, you do something like that, and it feels like all the good gets washed away. God put that water fountain there, and I knew it. I knew it, uh, I knew it the second that I had heard it, and I noticed it uh, because everyone had been noticing me. I'm so sorry, I said. 
Something had ruptured, come unmoored deep inside me. The demon of pride let loose and made visible. Willie had broken his nose, and I had fractured my enduring belief in the unsullied purity of my intentions. It would take me years to understand this, but the understanding began in, the church, in that church hallway that a good person is a temporary and imaginary creature as make-believe as unicorns and fire-breathing cows because the best of us are often the worst, full of proud and viperous snakes, believing ourselves to be gods. The dragons did not just live in history and myth. They lived inside me. Why do, I, why do I make you sit through that? Well, one, it's quite comical. I mean, you hate this for the kid to maybe bump his nose on the water fountain. But I do think he's on to something. Even our best intentions, even what we believe to be our most unsullied, I think he said, in, 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 intentions about helping others can often be marred and colored and shaded by, by pride. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about last week whenever he talked about the human condition, that left to ourselves, this is where we wind up. Whether we wind up moving in the direction of you know, doing whatever our desires and impulses incline us to do, or we try to do the best that we can, believing ourselves to be good, when in fact we are, Paul says, by nature, children of wrath. Uh, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, once said that trying to get a person to stand on the, the, on the course of the gospel is like trying to get a drunk man to stay on a horse. You throw him on one side and he falls off on the other. And oftentimes we just kind of go between one side or the other, licentiousness, living however we want, or legalism and self-righteousness, believing ourselves to be better than others. And so Paul, telling the church in Ephesus, again, made up of people, of a myriad of backgrounds with a, a litany of different religious convictions, the only way he's going to get them aligned and come together is to tell them who they were apart from Christ, how they all shared this one thing in common, namely that they were, they were children of wrath. Like mankind, we were enslaved. So there were three things we talked about last week that we need to kind of touch on again this morning. Essentially, the human condition, uh, Paul says, is our state. We're spiritually dead. We are unable to clean ourselves up. We're unable to get our act together. We're unable to turn over enough new leaves to make ourselves acceptable to God. In fact, left to ourselves, we may live, but we live in a state of spiritual death. And then he said, not only do we have a problem with our state, we have a problem with sin. We talked about it last week. Paul uses two words, trespasses and, and sins. Both, both failure, we fail to live up to the law. We don't do all the good that we are called or should do. And, and rebellion, we know what we should do and we choose not to do it. And so because of our state and because of our sin, we wind up enslaved. We just read that there where Paul says we were enslaved to, to the ways of the world. We have a cultural enslavement. We'll just adapt and go along with the way that the world is heading. We, we have a, a supernatural enslavement. There's a, the power of the prince of the air. There's the devil himself enticing us, tempting us, that, that holds us in his clutches and in his grip such that we do what the evil one would have us do. And then Paul says, there's the worst slavery of all, the one that Harrison Scott Key just ended with here, the dragon that lives inside of all of us, where we're held captive to our, our passions and our lusts, where we're enslaved to the flesh, where even the good we want to do often comes from mixed motives and impure thoughts. And so often we're, we're enslaved in those ways and left to ourselves, we are without hope, totally unable to save or fix ourselves. And that idea of the human condition is what sets up verse 4, where we, where we kind of touched on this last week. Paul says, okay, all of that is true about human beings. This is, this is who we are apart from Christ. But God, but God, who is 
rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift. And so today, I just want to touch on real quick the, the, the aspects of this divine solution. What I love about the way Paul writes this back to the church at Ephesus is that he's explaining to them what happened whenever they trusted Christ by faith. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's giving them insight from above, insight that comes from God himself about what, what transferred or what transitioned in their own souls when they trusted Christ by faith. We get here in the divine solution, what God did. This is Paul Paul saying, this is what happened when you trusted Christ by faith. God did this in you. And then, even better, Paul says, and this is why God did it. So we don't have to guess about what would motivate God to do such a thing for human beings who are dead and enslaved in their spiritual state. Why would God do that for us? Paul tells us. He unpacks that for us. And then ultimately, that concludes, as I said earlier, and we'll conclude with it this morning, the new creation. This is who we are now in Christ Jesus, and we'll elaborate on that even more next week as we look at verses 11 and following. So so let's jump back in, the divine solution. Look back in verse 4. But God, again, the subject of this entire run-on sentence, the first seven seven verses is one sentence, and and the main subject there is God. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So I just want to kind of go through the very simple things that I think Paul says and talk about what God did in saving us. The first thing that we see, I just said it, is that God made us alive, but here's the kicker, together. What did God do in saving us? He, made, he gave us new life, but Paul doesn't just say that he gave us life as individuals. He made us alive together. Remember, his, his telos, his goal The objective that he's leaning towards is to show these people from all of these wild backgrounds and convictions that they share this one thing in common. And that's what Paul says is is, is happening here. When you trust Christ by faith, he makes you alive together amongst the church, amongst God's people. God grants spiritual life to us. Now, uh, so often in, in kind of Southern evangelical culture, if you were raised in the church at all, if you were around kind of this particular stream of, 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 of the way we see and understand the Bible, you've probably heard that salvation is about being saved. And we'll talk about being saved because Paul says that here as well. And being saved was usually kind of pitched as though the, the idea of, of getting out of judgment, getting out of the judgment of God, the wrath of God, hell itself, and being delivered into heaven one day when you die. That was kind of the schema of salvation. But Paul talks about that, and he, he, he gets there, but the, the main emphasis that he starts with or, or that he leads with is that we were made alive. So salvation begins at faith. It's not just when we die and go to heaven. If something happens, we are regenerated. We are given new life upon trusting Christ by faith. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. New life must come and dwell within you. And Paul says here that new life is not just for each of us individually to work out on our own, but it's a new life that we're given collectively. In other words, there's an aspect of salvation. There's there's a key emphasis of God's saving work in us through Jesus that is really only manifested amongst the people of God. You were given new life, but that new life is counted together amongst a people. It's, it's anti-individualism through and through. We are not just saved to get out of hell and get into heaven. We're saved and given new life to be a part of a new people, 
to, to, to join in on God's kingdom work that he's up to in the here and now. We're not just biding our time until we're you know, beamed up into heaven upon death or the return of Jesus. We're, we're a part of a church. We are knit together because of the life that we share that we have in common in Christ Jesus. That's the emphasis Paul is making here. The life of God exists primarily amongst the people of God in community, which is why if church for you is just the experience of an event, it's severely limited. We're meant to experience the life that God has given, not just to us, but also to others as we interact with, care for, love, and serve one another, which that's where Paul takes us towards the end. We were made alive together. And then Paul says, not only that, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together. By grace, you have been saved. That's what he says at the end of verse, end of verse 5 and again in verse 8. So, so he's talking about salvation. Now, saved from what? Well, that's where we got to go back and look at those first three verses again. We're saved from wrath. We talked about that last week. We were by nature children of wrath. Whether that wrath is the wrath of God rightly directed upon those who have both failed to live up to his law and, and, and rejected or rebelled against his law as well, whether that's what he's talking about or the, the wrath that we experience by always turning on one another because the human heart is turned in on itself innately selfish, so we, everyone is competition, everyone is a threat apart from God's saving grace. Both of those, I think, apply. So Paul says we're saved from, we're saved from wrath, from being children of wrath. From being bent against one another and bent against God himself. But also, we're saved from ourselves. We're saved from that spiritual state of death. We're saved from spiritual slavery. We're, we're saved from our sin. This is what Paul said back in chapter 1 when he went on this effusive praise ballad about what God has done in Jesus. He says, look, God chose us in him for the foundations of the world. God God redeemed us in the Son. The Father chose us. The Son redeemed us or, or bought us back. He's forgiven us of our sins. And then God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us this, this guarantee or this inheritance that he's going to accomplish in us what he promised. So we're saved from, from me. We're saved from ourselves. We're saved from the, 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 the leaning of our own hearts towards, the inclinations towards always being self-serving, always being self-effacing. And so being saved is, a, is about that. It's about wrath. It's about our selfishness. But it's also being saved from, from a life of meaninglessness. I mean, when Paul talks about this in, in those first three verses, and he says, apart from God, we were held captive to our own passions and desires. You realize what a, what a worthless existence that is? To just merely run from one small thrill to the next? You know, getting some release of neurochemicals until they subside and we go and try again. I mean, for many, that, 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 that's why we wind up addicted. That's why we wind up, you know, in, in, in very various mental capacities and inhabited by our own being and our own existence because we, we just run after pleasure. We don't know another way. So Paul says salvation is not just about judgment. It's not just about getting out from underneath wrath. It's not just about our own slavery. It's about that as well. Just an existence where we run from one meal to the next, one vacation to the next, one accomplishment to the next, putting another bullet point on our resume. Whatever the thing is that scratches our itch, whatever causes our, our feeble brains to release a little bit of oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin, that, that thing, we get saved from that as well. We're now inclined to a life that has meaning and purpose. 
It's like when we show a video about foster care and adoption. Apart from the work of salvation in life, can you foster? Yes. But, but will you be experiencing the fullness of God in that? Will you, will you know that in, in the midst of giving away your life, you're doing what God has designed and called you to do? According to Paul, I don't think so. You can do good things, but the intention, the, 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 the long, long-term effects of what God is doing, not just in this, but as Paul says, into the age to come, it's only experienced through faith in Jesus. And we're saved so that we can experience that. The third thing Paul says is that he raised us up together as well. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, he says, by grace you have been saved, verse 6, and he raised us up with him. And that's salvation language. Raised us up is the words that Paul's using again back at the end of chapter 1 when he talks about Jesus coming out of the ground, which is why our vision of salvation has to be expanded beyond just getting to heaven one day. Paul says both here and in places like Romans chapter 6, it's, it's what Peter writes in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, the people of God are a people who in the here and now experience resurrection life. They experience in their being the fact that God is animating their person. That the same power that brought Jesus up out of the ground when he had been dead for three days and brought him back to life is now not only accessible to us in the Holy Spirit, but given to us forever. We have that. Which is why we are a hope-filled people. There are no lost causes in God's kingdom. There's no one who gets written off. There's no one who gets dismissed. There's no thing where we get to say, well, I'm just broken in this way, so dot, dot, dot. No. If resurrection life has been given to us, God raised us up with Jesus, and the power of God himself lives within us. We are animated by that, God giving us life in that way. So for many of y'all this morning, I would just say, let's stop there, and let's talk about what that means for your marriage. Let's talk about what that means for parenting. Let's talk about what that means for your job. Let's talk about what that means for the person that absolutely drives you bananas. And how God can give you a capacity for love and tolerance and grace towards them that apart from faith in Jesus would not have been possible, but with faith in Jesus is not only possible, but may actually be happening even now in you. I mean, the implications are, are, are multiple. Think of all the ways that God's, God's resurrection power is at work within you in order to make you a new creation, make you a new creature. But not only that, Paul says, not only did he raise us up, he seated us with Jesus. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, you're like, what does that mean? You know, you're sitting down now. What does it mean to be seated in the heavenly places? Well, for one, I think Paul here is talking about our position. If we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that means that there is some uh, certainty about where we stand with God. You can put to rest all of the anxious wondering that exists within your life about whether or not God, God loves you or accepts you. If you've trusted Christ by faith, Paul says, you're seated. Your, your spot at the table is reserved. And somehow, in an ethereal plane that we cannot yet comprehend or see, in the heavenly places, we are there with Christ. So you have a position that is utterly and completely secure. This is why what I love about what Paul says about the gospel here, if I was dead and I came to life, if, if God put resurrection power within me, then, then my constant wondering about where I stand with God can go, to, can go to, to die as well. He's given me a permanent position in Christ. I'm eternally secure, as some theologians would say. I know that God has gone from, gone from my threat to my father. 
And now he, he loves me, accepts me, has given me the righteousness of Jesus, and I can trust, live, and exist in that. We have position. We have security. We are with Christ forever. And the good news of that for a church made up of a multitude of backgrounds and ideas and opinions is that they don't have to jockey for position with each other. We're not in a competition with each other. I'm not trying to outdo you in anything other than in showing honor and, and good works. That's, and not good works to earn favor, but good works because God has given me new life. And the more I get to experience that life, the more good I can do. So, so competing with one another dies in faith. I don't, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to prove myself right. I'm going to show myself to be better than you. We both have a seat at the table forever by faith. The end. It's good news. The church should perhaps then be one of the least competitive places on the planet. We're not building a resume here. We've been given one. It's perfect. It's Jesus' resume. Have a seat at the table. Enjoy. Find out how God wants to use you. Plug in. Be of use in those ways. Paul wraps that up with a bow by saying at the end of verse 8, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is a gift. Now, if you put all this together, I think you can start to see kind of what he's aiming at here. No one can boast. It is a gift. There's no more competition. We've been raised up and seated. We didn't do this. We were spiritually dead. God acted on our behalf by faith, raising us up, giving us new life. And it it's, it's utterly and completely and totally a gift, which means that, I think, the only people who get to receive this gift are people who realize they need to be saved. If you think that you can earn a gift, you take away what a gift is, right? A gift is a gift is a gift. You have to be given that. Not only that, people who need to be saved are typically not people who believe themselves to be competent. People who need to be saved are people who acknowledge Man, I'm, I'm a mess. I am a wreck apart from the intervening grace of God in my life. And so Paul's telling this church made up of this myriad of backgrounds again, Jew and Gentile, some Jews who perhaps kept kosher their whole life, who have done everything that they know that they are supposed to do, believe themselves to do in order to make sure that they're in good standing with God. And then occult pagans who maybe even within the last day had sacrificed to some foreign God and gone to a temple filled with prostitutes to try to try to seal the deal. And Paul's telling both of those groups of people, the uber-righteous in their own minds and the uber-licentious in, in reality, guess what? You both got in by gift. Sheer, complete, total grace. No one gets to brag. No one gets to boast. No one's got a leg up. The competition is over. And N.T. writes commentary on this particular section. He writes in the, about Ephesians, faith is not something that humans do to make themselves acceptable to God. Nothing we can do, unaided, can achieve that. If there were such a thing, it would become a matter of our own initiative. And the people who had this ability would be able to hold their heads up in pride over those who didn't. On the contrary, because it's all a matter of God's gift, there is no room for any human being to boast. We all got in. We all got access. We all got VIP access at the table where the, the, wedding, the wedding feast of the groom and the bride being joined together at the end of the ages. We all got that seed in the heavenlies. We all got the coming ages of God's kindness because Jesus passed through on our behalf. Because Jesus gave us that right, that access, and that privilege. Now, that's what God did. But what I love about this section is that Paul tells us why he did it. And it's meant to just blow our minds. Back in verse 4, but God, here it is, being rich in mercy. 
Why did God save us? Why did God make us alive? Why did God raise us up and seat us with Jesus? Why would he give us this gift? Because God is rich in compassion. That's why. Now, your translation says mercy. Most translations here say mercy. But the word there that's used for mercy is also the word that's translated compassion elsewhere in the scriptures. And I get, I get why the translators would call it mercy. Because if we are by nature children of wrath, then God choosing not to pour his wrath out on us is a very merciful act. The reason why I like compassion more, though, is because if we think about this, this, this transaction, God and us, faith, and we think about it in a judicial sense, then we can kind of get this cold sterile vision of God. God is a judge on a bench who has a case against me, but because he's rich in mercy, he chooses acquittal. He chooses to, to let me go free. And that, that just sounds like, okay, yeah, he's a very kind and merciful judge. But if you think about compassion, then you think, no, God feels something towards us. It's not just that he's like, okay, yeah, you're the slate's wiped clean, get out of here, go on. In, in, our, in our broken state, in our, in our abject slavery, in our deadness, God moves towards us. That's why the follow-up here, the corollary that Paul says is, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, check this out, even Paul says while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not, this is Romans 5. This is not when we had gotten it together, not when we turned over the right leaf, not when we decided enough is enough, I'm going to do good now. When we were utterly helpless and hopeless, God moved towards us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses. As Paul says in Romans, even while we were enemies. The picture of the gospel is one that God is, has great love for us, but it's unconditional love. And I, I want to draw that out because Paul's emphasis on the fact that is while we were dead in our trespasses that God did this. Look, we don't sit in this enough because for the most part, and I, I say this as a father with kids that I, I say all the time, I don't think there's anything they could ever do that would make me love them less. However, I've heard enough stories in ministry where I'm like, oh, that is so painful, so awful, so hard. I, I, I think I have unconditional love, but man, if I get really honest, there's, it feels like there may be a line somewhere deep down within. God doesn't have that line. And that's why this love is other. At, at, at root somewhere within our broken, frail state of sinfulness, I think that there is some measure of transaction always connected to our love, even at its, even at its most pure sense. However, with God, the line doesn't exist. Paul says, while we were dead, when we had absolutely nothing to offer and every, every just right of God to be judged, he made us alive. So God did this because that's his character. Paul says that's his nature. And I believe the more the people of God get to know that nature, warm themselves by that nature, lean into that nature, the more loving and compassionate they become as well. In fact, Paul says, Paul did this because he has a plan to demonstrate his kindness to us forever. That's his agenda. That's God's angle. See, this is why we're, we're, we're so broken and marred by sin. We, we live in such a transactional existence. And anytime we see anyone showing uh, over and above love like this, we're like, well, what, what are you doing? What are you trying to get over? What's your angle here? Paul says God doesn't have one. And if he does, the hope is that in the coming ages, you get to see even more of this love, even more of this mercy, even more of this grace. 
And so that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, this is why we're almost done. This is why I commonly say here, every battle that you're currently fighting of a spiritual nature is ultimately a battle of faith. Do you believe that God is this good? Do you believe that he's this kind? Do you believe that his intention for you is always to form you and shape you into the image of his son so that in the coming ages he will show the immeasurable riches of his kindness towards you in Christ Jesus? Because to the extent that you do, it it manifests itself in a particular way of life. To the extent that you don't, you, you run and hide from it. And that's why Paul ends with the new creation. He says here in verse 9, This is not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. That word literally means creation. We are created by him, created in Christ Jesus. So when God brought us to life, gave us resurrection life, he recreated us in the person of Jesus so that in Christ Jesus, we were created for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. Catch this. What what Paul just said is our being comes before our doing. We We were recreated in Christ for good work. So we, we were situated in him before we were able to do anything for him. So, so position precedes production. Who we are in Jesus comes before we live in this particular way, but we will live in that particular way if we are in Christ. In other words, we're saved to serve. We're stripped of all the pretense and all of the competitiveness and all of the one-upping one another so that we can actually serve one another because it's the free love we've been given. It's the grace that's been bestowed upon us. Ben Witherington, in his fantastic commentary on the section, says this. He says, saved people are God's handiwork, and they have been saved to serve, created in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose, to do good works. These works are done not to earn God's praise or favor, but out of a grateful heart and obedient spirit, responding to the the gift of salvation. Believers were not saved simply to revel in the benefits of the salvation experience. Rather, God renovates a people so that they will, in fact, do his will. So God, would that be our experience this morning? By grace, through faith, would would we be able to let our deadly doing down, to leave it at Jesus feet and and then to be raised with him again, to be restored in him again, to be reminded of the security we have in him again, such that it melts our hearts, such that it leads to us being a grateful people, a people who respond in faith and who love and serve others because we've been given life as a completely free gift. Lord, help us trust it, help us believe it, help our unbelief in Jesus' name. Amen.